Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at the disruptions to society that can unfold in times of economic distress, such as high inflation, price gouging, wage stagnation, and income inequality, as well as some policy ideas for turning things around. Clips today are from The Tom Hartman Program, Robert Reich, Democracy Now!, The Zero Hour, The Bradcast, and Pitchfork Economics, with additional members-only clips from The Daily Show and The Zero Hour. So how does, uh, you know, specifically, I suppose, inflation lead to fascism, and how, in a larger sense, do economics swing the cycles of world history throughout history? Well, they do it over and over again. It ought to be a a basic understanding of the enormous importance and power of economics in general and economic turmoil uh, in particular. Let me very briefly go with you through the German experience and show you how impactful it is in terms of where we are now here uh, in the United States in 2022. The German economy exploded in the second half of the 20th century. Together with the United States, Germany and the United States were the great challengers to the British Empire. As the uh, century progressed, it became clear that one or the other would replace Britain as the dominant capitalist power in the world, and the British were powerless to stop it. In the end, the Germans and the British went to war, and the Americans went with the British in that war, World War One. But it came as a cataclysm to the Germans because the working class there had wages go up, had itself become wealthy relative to anything the rest of Europe could understand, etc., etc. And they thought they were in the catbird seat. When they lost World War I, it was a devastating blow to them. But they might have worked their way through it. That war, if you remember, ended in 1918. Then in 1923, four or five years later, they had one of the worst inflations in the world. German marks went from four or five to a dollar to five billion to a dollar. I mean, prices were doubling literally every couple of hours over months at a time. You had no way to save anything. The frugal German family that had saved money for generations suddenly discovered that all those savings would barely buy you a quarter pound of butter. And then four or five years later, 1929, they were hit with the Great Depression that hit all capitalist countries. But for the working class of Germany, it was too much. In the space of a decade, they lost the World War. They went through one of the worst inflations in history. And then they were devastated by the Great Depression. There is no coincidence that literally two years after the Great Depression hits, begins the real rise to power of Adolf Hitler. The German working class needed somebody, anybody, to prevent their complete decimation. And now here we are in the United States. And let me show you the parallel. We just had one of the worst public health disasters in our history. We had the second worst crash of the capitalist system in our history. We have lost the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, and then we have an inflation, and now we are expecting a a 
a, a recession. It's too much to impose on a working class. People become very depressed, very desperate. And in that situation in Germany, they went in a fascist direction. And we see the signs of it here. Nobody can tell the future. I can't either. But we ought to be awfully careful about what we are visiting on the mass of the American working people, Democrat and Republican alike, because when the backlash comes and we're already halfway there, it is not going to be anything we would want to even imagine. I remember reading a history of that, uh, you know, post-World War I period, and uh, John Maynard Keynes came out and said that if the Treaty of Versailles that was being negotiated by the Allied powers who had defeated Germany, um, which was demanding massive reparations from Germany and demanding that they be paid in Deutschmarks, if those reparations were to uh, remain in that treaty, that it would produce World War II. He said it, it, World War II will become inevitable. He was, mm, I don't want to say laughed at, but ignored, shall we say largely. And, uh, you know, I think it was really, it, it was very much the case, was it not? I mean, it, it wasn't much of the German inflation an effort to, since they, they owed billions or trillions to the rest of Europe in Deutschmarks to, to pay it off with depreciated Deutschmarks? Absolutely. But let me take your, your parallel, the further step that will help people see its relevance. Absolutely. They did impose the reparations. The reparations made Germany's recovery from the war take much longer, uh, make the suffering of the Germans uh, stretch it out further. But more than any real effect, and it had real effects, was the fact that it allowed a demagogue, Hitler, to make an argument which wasn't correct, namely what really problematized Germany was the loss of the war and the inflation and the whole structure of their economy and the global depression. But he got rid of all of that and gave them one focus. It's the West. It's Britain, the United States in cahoots with Russia. He hooked it up that way. And it was the evil others outside of Germany that had to be defeated. He was the only politician determined to rearm Germany to make it possible. The demagogue comes in to the distraught working class, gives them a scapegoat, gives them a way forward, and then watches as the suffering they, they went through turns them to somebody, and he's the somebody in that moment. The parallel with our own situation ought to occur to everyone. Well, and I think that parallel uh, is probably best illustrated in the 1916, uh, excuse me, in the 2016 uh, primary debates uh, where you had uh, Bernie Sanders taking the populist position that, yeah, the economy sucks in many regards, and it does so because a bunch of billionaires have gamed the system and, and the Supreme Court has corruptly allowed them into politics, and we need to go back to a, a reasonable political system and a taxation system. On the left, you had Bernie Sanders saying that. And then on the right, you had Donald Trump saying, yes, the, game, the system is gamed and, and you've been screwed um, but it's because brown people are coming in from Mexico and because uh, political elites have cut, uh, you know, trade deals like NAFTA and things like that, which had some truth to it, by the way. Um, you know, not the brown people part, but the, the NAFTA part. 
And so you had kind of dueling populism, right-left populism, offering solutions to this crisis that America was facing after, you know, both the crash of 2000 and the crash of 2008. And uh, it seems like the middle has collapsed in all this because the middle has been corrupted by uh, largely Supreme Court decisions and, and capitalism itself, frankly. Um, so uh, wouldn't, you know, was, I, I'm assuming that there was a parallel movement in Germany opposed to Hitler, or maybe it was part of Hitler's movement to say, you know, we need to empower the average working person. I know in 1937, when he was on the cover of Time magazine, he was the most popular politician in the world because he had put Germany back together. Absolutely. The, par- the parallels, once you look at it this way and you ask the question, they kind of come at you one after another. In Germany, there was an opposition. There was an extremely strong socialist party and by 1931 and two, right next to it, an extremely strong communist party. Together, they were picking up roughly half of the votes in the national elections right up until the moment that Hitler comes to power. Their problem was the socialists had been in power for the previous decade or much of it, the 1920s. And since that hadn't solved the problems of the working class, it put them on a defensive position, allowing uh, Mr. Hitler to come in and do his thing. It's almost as though you could criticize the socialists and communists, particularly the socialists, because the communists never got into the government the way the socialists did in Germany then. But you could criticize them for not doing enough to really change the situation of the mass of people. Had they done so, it would have been a much stronger defense against Hitler coming in. But they were complicit kind of in the way that a significant part of the Democratic Party has been, leaving a a rump portion, Bernie, AOC, and the rest, having to push more weight than they can handle, given the history that arrives at this point. Inflation, inflation, everybody's talking about it, but ignoring one of its biggest causes, corporate concentration. Now, prices are undeniably rising. In response, the Fed is about to slow the economy, even though we're still at least 4 million jobs short of where we were before the pandemic. And millions of American workers won't get the raises they deserve. Republicans haven't wasted any time hammering Biden and Democratic lawmakers about inflation. Skyrocketing inflation. 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 But don't fall for their fear-mongering. Everybody's ignoring the deeper structural reason for price increases, the concentration of the American economy into the hands of a very few corporate giants with the power to raise prices. If the market were actually competitive, corporations would keep their prices as low as possible as they competed for customers. Even if some of their costs increased, they would do everything they could to avoid passing those costs on to consumers in the form of higher prices for fear of losing business to competitors. But that's the opposite of what we're seeing. Corporations are raising prices even as they rake in record profits. Corporate profit margins hit record highs last year. 
You see, these corporations have so much market power, they can raise prices with impunity. So the underlying problem isn't inflation per se, it's lack of competition. Corporations are using the excuse of inflation to raise prices and make fatter profits. Take the energy sector. Only a few entities have access to the land and pipelines that control the oil and gas powering most of the world. They took a hit during the pandemic, as most people stayed home. But they are more than making up for it now, limiting supply and ratcheting up prices. Uh, Chevron, Exxon have doubled their profits. This isn't about inflation. This is about price gouging. Or look at consumer goods. In April 2021, Procter & Gamble raised prices on staples like diapers and toilet paper, citing increased costs in raw materials and transportation. But P&G has been making huge profits. After some of its price increases went into effect, it reported an almost 25% profit margin. Looking to buy your diapers elsewhere? Well, good luck. The market is dominated by P&G and Kimberly Clark, which not entirely coincidentally raised its prices at the same time. Another example, in April 2021, PepsiCo raised prices, blaming higher costs for ingredients, freight and labor. It then recorded $3 billion in operating profits through September. How did it get away with this without losing customers? Pepsi has only one major competitor, Coca-Cola, which promptly raised its own prices. Coca-Cola recorded $10 billion in revenues in the third quarter of 2021, up 16% from the previous year. Food prices are soaring, but half of that is from meat, which costs 15% more than last year. There are only four major meat processing companies in America, which are all raising their prices and enjoying record profits. Get the picture? The underlying problem is not inflation, it's corporate power. Since the 1980s, when the U.S. government all but abandoned antitrust enforcement, all American industries have become more concentrated. Most are now dominated by a handful of corporations that coordinate prices and production. This is true of banks, broadband, pharmaceutical companies, airlines, meat packers, and yes, soda. Corporations in all these industries and more could easily absorb higher costs including long overdue wage increases without passing them on to consumers in the form of higher prices, but they aren't. Instead, they're using their massive profits to line the pockets of major investors and executives, while both consumers and workers get shafted. How can this structural problem be fixed? Fighting corporate concentration with more aggressive antitrust enforcement Biden has asked the Federal Trade Commission to investigate oil companies, and he's appointed experienced antitrust lawyers to both the Federal Trade Commission and the Justice Department. So don't fall for Republicans' fear-mongering about inflation. The real culprit here is corporate power.
Professor Ghosh, if you can talk about um, the actual corporations, if you could name names of the large corporations that are making a killing off of what's happening right now, um, that are making huge profits. I mean, we know when it comes to, for example, gas, and many people in the United States have asked, they would say, well, people are paying five or six dollars because of the war, Russia's war in Ukraine. But it turns out that ExxonMobil and BP, all these oil companies, are making more money right now than ever in their history. If you can talk about the same when it comes overall to inflation and food prices as well. So this is the whole issue that, you know, once you get some increase in prices, companies see this as a terrific way of quickly making additional profits by raising their prices even more than is justified. So, yes, there is, as I mentioned, this cost push element. But what you're also getting is profiteering, plain and simple. So companies, as you mentioned, in the oil sector, companies in the food sector, companies in a range of other sectors are raising their prices much more than is justified by the increase in their own costs. And they can do this because there's a whole atmosphere of inflation expectation. And this enables them to—there are no limits. I mean, this is a time when, really, you have to have public policy, which is regulating companies like this. And it's possible. The governments can do it. You have to regulate the companies that are openly profiteering. You have to set some controls on the prices of essentials that enter into all other prices. And or fuel is one of them. You really have to make sure that those prices are regulated and determined. So the, the notion of this free market is completely false because these are big, fat as companies, oligopolies that can control the market. And so you really have to make sure that governments regulate those prices. The same thing is true internationally. We are getting the big players in agribusiness raising prices of basic grains and foods well beyond what is justified by the increase in costs. And this is affecting people in the developing world who are already much worse off than those in the US and Europe, who already experienced the pandemic much worse because they had decline in employment, falling livelihood, falling money wages. They haven't had a recovery. Their governments haven't had the money to spend that has been spent in the U.S. and Europe. They are still well below levels of employment that were there before the pandemic. And now they are facing these huge increases in food prices and fuel prices that really are just going to make massive increases in poverty and hunger globally. So we have to address the problem at the root, which is in terms of the ways in which prices are structured, the companies that are allowed to get away with straightforward profiteering in times of crisis and bring in regulations and controls that will prevent that. And uh, in speaking of these uh, protests that have begun to develop, uh, as uh, in, especially in the developing world in Sri Lanka, there was a mass protest over the cost of essential goods. Uh, and on Tuesday, the country stopped its international debt payments, effectively defaulting on its debts. Do you foresee a potential debt crisis across the developing world as a result of this, uh, of these inflationary uh, 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 forces? Yes, absolutely. And this, something, this is something we had predicted a year ago, actually, even before the Ukraine war. The Ukraine war has 
if you like, accentuated and intensified the problem. But it's not just economists like me. The IMF has predicted this, that if you don't do something about, first of all, the huge overhang of debt that already a lot of countries had, then the knee-jerk response of countries in the North, uh, US and Europe to raise interest rates, so capital, all the capital comes back to these countries, and then you get massive volatility and capital flight from all the developing countries, you're going to get massive debt crises. This is just the beginning. This is, if you like, the first step in towards the abyss. I wanted to ask you about the inquiry that you're taking part in today with um, with Progressive International, which was founded um, uh, uh, by, among others, the independent Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, um, as well as Yanis Varoufakis of Greece. Um, can you talk about the inquiry into the IMF and how that relates to what we're talking about? Well, you know, I think many people in this in Korea are going to be arguing that the IMF has been guilty of many sins of commission and omission. I think the sins of commission are very important, but they're well known. Let me quickly highlight the IMF goes into developed countries that are in deep crisis and says, cut public spending. And it's part of the way they are supposed to somehow bring these countries back into balance by saying, you reduce government spending, you impose austerity, and investors will feel more confident. Private investors will then come flocking in. That rarely happens. All that happens is that the problem gets much, much worse. There are many ways in which the IMF has had a very double standard, again, in terms of the rich countries and the not rich countries, the middle income and low low income countries, because in the rich countries, they say, yes, spend more. You have to be counter cyclical. You have to revive the economy in the middle and low income countries. They say, oh, you have to cut down on your spending because you have to reduce your deficit. You have a very large debt. You have to make sure you can somehow reduce that debt in the period of crisis. So. In turn, they then demand extra fees and commissions. They impose surcharges on the countries that are worst off, that have had to take IMF loans for a longer period or take larger IMF loans, which is absolutely ridiculous. It's the IMF making profits all out of a catastrophe in all of these countries. So these are the sins of commission, which are very great and have had devastating consequences across the world, really. But the sin of omission, I would argue, is actually even greater. The IMF is the only multilateral agency we have today that handles global finance and can think of international financial arrangements to do with crises, to deal with the challenges that humanity faces. We don't have any other structure. Now, humanity, we know. First, there was a pandemic. We know that there could be well more pandemics and so on. But there is climate change, which is, again, already upon us, which is affecting agricultural supply, which is affecting coastal sea rises, which is affecting livelihoods, which is causing already significant increases in environmental destruction, in hunger, in employment loss, in people having to move, displacement, all kinds of things. You have to bring in massive public spending. And the IMF is the agency that can do it. Where is the ambition that can actually provide this minimal funding for the huge climate challenges that we face globally? And which really, again, you can't be nationalist about this. Climate doesn't respect passports and visas. It's not stopping to wait at the border. It's going to affect everybody if we don't do something now. And the IMF has been remarkably unambitious, sluggish, I would say, really not doing the minimum that it's supposed to do. 
It was created just after the Second World War in a very, very, very different world with this power structure that is completely ridiculous now with the U.S. being able to block everything, U.S. and Europe controlling 60 percent of the voting rights and all that. But as a result, it really hasn't moved to do the basic things that a multilateral organization that is in charge of global finance has to do. What's happening is we are living in a disconnect, a disconnect between our government and the mass of the people, between those who run the mass media and the mass of the people. In short, there are multiple narratives, and we can see that everywhere. You know, uh, the Trump base of the Republican Party clearly lives in a place quite different from where a large other portion of American people are living. So we're seeing a, a, a community, if you like, break apart. I don't think there's a polite or nice way to say it. And one of the symptoms or signs of it are these extraordinarily incompatible renditions of what's going on. And, and you know, we've had that before, right? Throughout the 20-year war in Afghanistan, we were constantly told by our military leaders how we were winning, how the surge was catching the Taliban off guard, uh, on and on and on. And then the war finally is over and we lose and the Taliban takes over. Uh, clearly, something was not working quite right in the rendition. Pretty much the same story applies to Iraq. Um, we will see pretty soon, I suspect, uh, whether the same kind of um, disconnect applies to Ukraine and so on. Uh, and it also applies domestically. I mean, the, the University of Michigan does the most widely respected uh, survey of consumer sentiments. Their recent results are unambiguous that the American people are more pessimistic about their financial situation and not only about how it is now, but what they foresee it will be six and 12 months out because those questions are asked by the uh, University of Michigan's uh, Consumer Survey. So clearly, Something is going on with the mass of people in terms of how they understand the economy when compared to the Federal Reserve, the New York Times, and so on. And I've noticed it too. Um, it is remarkable among my colleagues as economists how some of them seem to be really gung-ho. They use words like the economy is strong, the economy is resilient, uh, there's nothing to worry about, etc., etc. You know, Janet Yellen, as I think I've mentioned to you, was a classmate of mine at Yale. Uh, you know, and she and I look at this same world, and we see radically different um, things. You know, I could point, if you'd like, to a few Um the real wage of the United States has not budged for 40 years. Basically, we are doing not that much better 
in terms of what our average wage can afford for us to buy in 2022 than we were in 1980, which is over 40 years ago. I mean, we have not been spending on the working class in this country. So when someone says labor costs are rising, I'm looking at them, what are you talking about? The last 40 years have seen productivity per worker rise steadily, one, one and a half, two percent a year. Whereas what is paid to the worker has been flat in terms of its real value. Okay, it doesn't take rocket science to understand. The wage is what the employer gives the employee. Productivity is the reverse. It's what the employee gives to the employer. If what the employee has been giving to the employer goes up 1% or 2% a year for 40 years, but what the employer gives the employee is stagnant for 40 years, you know what we're going to get? A booming stock market and deepening inequality which is what every statistical study shows us. Except, of course, we know from history that this is not sustainable. And again, the proof is that from the high point reached by the stock market last November 2021 to right now as I'm speaking to you, the largest stock market in this country, the NASDAQ, has lost over 25% of its value. That $7 trillion vanished in terms of value. And I dare say that when the middle class and upper class of this country take a look at their 401k statements at the end of May, they are going to be in for a very distressing shock. And it's not a shock shocked that the economy is strong, but it's a shock exactly the other way. And finally, the measure most economists use for how the economy is doing, the GDP, gross domestic product, a rough measure of the total output of goods and services, for the first time in a long time, shrank in the last quarter. That is the, the first quarter of 2022 right. by one, one and a half roughly. Uh, this is not a sign of a strong economy. This is a sign of the opposite. So you kind of begin to wonder either what uh, the folks at the top have been drinking, eating, and smoking, or they have become advertisers, their job being to sell the government that they represent uh, and not to square with us about the strengths and weaknesses of that government. had 1 million deaths um, from COVID-19, and it's an unpleasant milestone that the United States has, has achieved, and we continue to be the epicenter of that pandemic. And this is all occurring um, in the context where, um, you know, the billionaire class has increased their wealth by a staggering $1.7 trillion. And, mm. you know, we got asked, what about the rest of us? You know, the median income from, you know, comparing 2020 to 2021 for, uh, you know, your average, you know, U.S. Uh, worker has mm -hmm. actually decreased by $2,000 in our, uh, you know, median household wealth 
uh, from you know from comparing 2019 to 2021 uh, to uh, 2001 has actually decreased. So um, yeah, when you look at it by you know income or wealth percentile, it has been the the top ten percent, but especially the top one percent who have seen impressive gains. So uh, let me start with uh, some of those questions. What is going on here, and why? Before we get to what can or should be done about it, and what is or isn't being done about it in uh, in Washington D.C., I understand. I guess I understand why you know Jeff Bezos's wealth and the Walton family's wealth—they're the owners of Walmart. Why they went up during the pandemic as lockdowns and so forth drove Amazon and Walmart deliveries through the roof. That I get, but uh, Bill Gates and especially Elon Musk wealth growth, that is a bit harder to make sense of. So as as Trevor Noah was sort of asking, uh, what is going on here and and why, uh, you know, are, are, are folks like uh, Musk and others allowed to essentially radically increase their wealth, I guess, using other people's money? Yeah. Um, so the interesting thing, like you said, uh, you know, it's, wealth has soared for some countries, and I mean, for some um, individuals and companies, and it makes intuitive sense because, um, you know, there was an increased demand and increase of sales for certain um, uh, products and services. Mm-hmm. But a lot of, uh, you know, the stock market, um, they were able to benefit from stimulus packages that were introduced to alleviate the initial economic impact of the pandemic. And there have been massive government inter- interventions throughout the world. The Federal Reserve began purchasing in like mid-2020 $120 billion worth of corporate bonds a month. Mm-hmm. And this effectively gave investors a floor and pushed the stock market up. Um, and, you know, referencing, uh, you know, Trevor Noah, um, when he talks about the, you know, the volatility of the stock market, mm-hmm. we first have to look at who participates in it and who invests in the stock market. You know, a little over half of U.S. Americans own stock, but the wealthiest top 10% own about 90% of all stock. Mm. And that demonstrates two things. That because, one, due to the concentration of ownership, uh, what is good for the stock market is not necessarily good for your average household mm-hmm. or individual because the benefits largely accrue to a small minority. Mm. And second is that the top 10% are essentially market makers and the rest are market takers. Mm. So, the stock market tends to be forward-looking, meaning it reflects the attitudes and perceptions of the rich on future economic performance, not actual or current sales or revenue. Mm-hmm. So the health and stability of the stock market is, is essentially dependent on the perception of you know 10% of our population and who does not necessarily have any expertise, but just react to an event or a statement mm-hmm. from a government official or entrepreneur or celebrity. We're joined by David Dayan, executive editor of the American Prospect. He writes about the four companies that sell almost all baby formula in the United States. In his new piece, headline, The Age of Rationing, From Pandemic Supply Chain Snarls to Baby Formula Shortages, We Forgot That Physical Production Isn't Magic and We Need to Engineer It for Stability. So let's start with this uh, real catastrophe right now um, for parents with babies across the country. And and um, the whole issue of monopoly, starting with the whistleblower who alerted the company and the FDA, and the response, 
The whistleblower was fired. Two babies die. We're talking about months ago before we got to this point where the shelves are bare for everyone. Yeah, the uh, whistleblower uh, first alerted uh, the company internally and then alerted the FDA. This was way back last October. This facility in Sturgis, Michigan, produces about 20 percent of the nation's supply of formula. So obviously, if you take that offline, you're going to have a problem. It's magnified even more by the market structure and the way that that formula is sold. But uh, just alone, if you take one out of every five boxes of formula off the shelves, uh, while the, this this is investigated, uh, you're going to have a, a problem of, of getting supply into the places that you need. And, and David, Dan, how did we get to this point uh, that uh, four companies, it seems almost every major industry in America today, uh, there's three or four companies that monopolize or control the supply. How did we get to uh, this point in terms of baby formula? Yeah, I would argue it's even worse in the baby formula uh, uh, industry. There are really two large conglomerates, uh, Abbott Labs, which makes Similac and also you know, produces medical devices, and Reckitt Benkiser, which is the creator of Enfamil, the other major uh, brand. Uh, and they're mostly known for making Lysol. They're a UK company that makes a whole bunch of consumer goods. Um, they're, they're really the giants. About two-thirds of the market is in the hands of those two companies. Uh, uh, Nestle, through the Gerber brand, and Perigo, which makes store brands, they have a, a little sliver. But the reason is that uh, we have a program called Women, Infants, and Children, the WIC program. And uh, about half of all formula passes through that program that, that goes to poor families. And it's very well-intentioned. You get very large discounts the government gets for purchasing formula and then getting it on to poor families. Uh, but they do this in a way that says that each state uh, – does a competitive bidding process with a formula company. And in exchange for those volume discounts, they get market exclusivity. So uh, if you go to the state of Michigan, the state of California, state of Oregon, there's only one company that if you're a WIC recipient, you can actually buy uh, and get uh, that formula for free. So uh, other competitors of uh, that you know, dominant company uh, whether it's in the WIC program or not, uh, you're not going to put stuff on the shelves if half of your customers can't buy it. So what you end up having is these little monopolies in all 50 states. And that's because of the structure of the WIC program, which gives this exclusive sole source contract in exchange for a discount. And while everyone is focused on baby formula, can you talk about uh, Abbott Labs and what other crucial products for children are also being disrupted right now? Yeah, I mean, Abbott Labs uh, makes uh, a whole host of other uh, uh, medical devices and healthcare products. Uh, of course, we were reminded at the beginning of the year that Abbott Labs was one of the two companies that was allowed to make COVID-19 tests in this country. And uh, they were, as, as we all remember, when there was a, a, a surge in COVID cases at the beginning of the year, uh, there was a shortage of that equipment. Last year, Abbott Labs 
shut down its facility for making COVID tests because of low demand. Uh, so there wasn't a stockpile. And uh, as a result, when when cases surged and people wanted the at home tests, they weren't readily available. And so this this speaks to sort of a desire to cut costs over creating some some redundancy, some resiliency, some inventory uh, on the part of Abbott. Uh, and, and, and on the part of the government itself, frankly. Um, and, uh, it's, it's led to a lot of problems, uh, uh, throughout the healthcare space. So the answer for President Biden is to allow in uh, foreign uh, form, uh, baby formula companies in this crisis. There was a discussion last week of invoking the Defense Production Act. You wrote mm-hmm. the book Monopolize, Life in the Age of Corporate Power. Um, what do you think needs further to happen so we're not going to see something like this again? And also just the outrage of there being a whistleblower, how the FDA plays in this, because they went to the FDA, they went to Abbott, they were just fired. Yeah, I mean, and and if you read the complaint between the FDA and Abbott, uh, you'll find that uh, traces of this bacteria that ended up killing these two, two babies was found in Abbott products in 2019 and in 2020. So obviously, there were a lot of problems at this lab in, in Sturgis, Michigan, and the FDA needs to do just a much better job of monitoring all this. Uh, so that's number one. Number two, I think you need to overhaul this WIC program and, and not create this situation where you have 50 dominant, uh, uh, little mini monopolies throughout the country for formula. Uh, it, it makes the whole system far less resilient. And if there's one, uh, uh, shock, basically, uh, you, you end up with this kind of crisis. 34 states Abbott holds that WIC contract and the states in which supply is most in shortage right now uh, correspond to the states where Abbott holds that contract. So that's clearly the problem. There are several ways to go about it. One is, you know, you just sort of if you want to do uh, this this market with WIC where poor families get these discounts, and it's very important that they do, uh, you could you could make that a government program and let private companies uh, on the non-WIC side of the market compete with one another. Uh, the other option is that instead of hiving off for the poor each purchase that they have to make uh, so that they have to get a WIC program for formula and they need food stamps for food and they need a housing voucher for housing, you, you could just sort of give... Uh, a larger cash benefit and let families figure out what they need on their own and uh, not not hide these things off and create these problems with the overall market. What can be done and what should be done to uh, you know, help even out the equation a little bit uh, before we get to the conversation about whether policymakers are actually taking action to do any of it. What would you like to see? What is what is the prescription for what ails us at this point? Yes, well, I, I would say that a, a short term solution would be a wealth tax on 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 the wealthy. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, we actually did a study earlier this year um, that was released um, in collaboration with Oxfam. Um, and uh, we estimated that if we levy a two percent tax on wealth over five million, three mm-hmm. percent on wealth over fifty million, 
and 5% over $1 billion, it would raise $928 billion um, just in the United States. Mm-hmm. So just think about what we could do with that revenue, um, you know, yearly. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that's something that could, you know, uh, you know, go towards health expenditures and making sure that our, you know, healthcare system is not, uh, is, is not overwhelmed. Um, you know, cause the pandemic has definitely shown some of the vulnerabilities that we have in our, in our, in our healthcare system. Um, you know, this could be used maybe to have partial student loan debt cancellation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we can reframe that as like a student loan stimulus if, if you know, people are not a fan of the word cancellation <laughs> right. or forgiveness. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah we, so we, we gave trillions in stimulus to the, uh, to the wealthy, to, you know, during the pandemic. Nobody uh, screamed about how unfair that was for what about everyone else who didn't get money? Uh, and yet when it comes to, you know, taking away even some of the uh, student debt, which is through the roof, thanks also, by the way, to private equity, uh, you know, people say, oh, that's unfair. But it's really, it's not, or at least it's no more unfair than it was when, uh, when the Fed, uh, fired its, its money cannon into the market, uh, during the two and a half years of the pandemic. Exactly. And, uh, as, you know, uh, we mentioned before, it was, a, the, the Fed was spending $120 billion a month that, um, you know, beginning in mid, um, mm-hmm. I think it was June 2020 and it ended in like December, uh, 2021. Um, they're still pumping money into the market. It's mm-hmm. only like sixty billion now, but there's still a significant amount of money to you know to prop up, uh, you know, not just um, you know already profitable companies, but mm-hmm. also companies that you know that if you know if we were truly a free market, they they should be uh, out of business at at this point. But you know, no one says to a corporation, "How come you didn't save six months?" Of you know expenses, um, but right. that yet we expect that from households, yeah. but not uh, the, the corporations. And how much of uh, what I see, uh, you know, I, personally as out and out profiteering at this point, pandemic profiteering, war profiteering, uh, you know, the oil companies, the clothes companies, the food companies. How much of that can actually be prevented by policymakers in D.C.? Didn't we used to have? Uh, weren't there laws against you know war profiteering in, in an economy where a handful of major companies or private equity firms now control monopolies or near monopolies where they can charge anything they want really for their products because they control so much of the market. There's really no place else for consumers to go. So there's no competition in the market to help keep prices down. And these companies are taking advantage to just raise their prices, um, you know, as uh, uh, accountable.us, uh, the president there said, just because they can. Is, is there anything that policymakers can do about that? Yes. Um, so it's not unprecedented. We used to have, uh, you know, commissions that are dedicated to tracking and looking at, uh, you know, uh, profiteering during times of uncertainty or crisis. Mm-hmm. So that's something that, you know, we could, uh, advocate for. And, um, we have done in, 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 um, past reports about, you know, let's have a specific COVID-19 commission mm-hmm. that looks into whether or not, um, the, the prices that we see, uh, in the market is a reflection of the fundamentals of supply and demand. And if they're not, you know, we should be able to have an excess, uh, an excess profits tax. Mm-hmm. So we can have a tax on the windfalls that, that can then be redistributed in the economy in the form of a stimulus check or, mm. like, you know, um, 
or be the beginnings of some type of, you know, basic income to basically ensure the material security of every individual in the United States. So, um, yeah, that, that is, um, you know, one thing. And now also that, I think that also that if we were to come up with a commission like that, you know, we should definitely look at, you know, have a committee of, you know, that assesses and rates our response to the COVID-19 pandemic and mm-hmm. identifies our shortcomings and makes recommendations on how to prepare for the future, including how to prepare, uh, having been you know, these committees that in order to uh, have uh, taxes on excess profits. Speaking of rules, uh, the Biden administration released their 2023 budget proposal a couple of weeks ago, and it did seem to send a loud message that Biden wants to curb corporate power. What's in it? And uh, what do you think is significant? Just to start, to be honest, there are lots of goods. There are also some bads and some, you know, maybe a few uglies in the president's budget. But uh, to start out on really just focus on the goods and, and what it could do to curb excessive corporate power. I'd say there's three main areas, and we can dig in a little bit more if you'd like. Um, The first one, I think that the president and his team made a a real important decision to call out support for work uh, that's being done in the Congress and SEC to tackle the pernicious use of uh, share buybacks. Um, We can go into detail on that. That's that I think was very important. It was not talked about so much, but I think an important part of uh, of the budget document. Then um, there, in terms of the funding side, there's further and really historic increases in funding for the antitrust law mechanisms, both the antitrust division of the DOJ and the FTC, I think will make a difference. Those agencies are incredibly understaffed and uh, we need to build them up as, as well as so many other federal agencies to be able to take on corporate power. And then third area where there was a lot of heat and a lot of discussion and a lot of good movement was on the tax code. And you know, the president said from the beginning that he wants to reward work, not wealth. And so a lot of the existing tax proposals we'd heard in his campaign um, were there, including increasing the corporate income tax rate, the personal income tax rate, et cetera, um, eliminating fossil fuel tax preferences. I think that was an important part of it. And then there's a couple of new tax proposals, one on ensuring a minimum tax uh, for centimillionaires and another to make sure that U.S. and foreign multinationals pay 15% per country everywhere, and that would effectively um, end the abuse of tax havens. Well, why don't we start with stock buybacks, which we have talked about so often on this show, because they're just, it's such, it's both such an egregious practice and simultaneously proof positive that as a country, we could afford to do almost anything we chose. If we wanted to, right? Yep. <laughs> it's both the, it's, it, you know, it's a waste of money. And it also proves that, like, if we wanted to fund anything, <laughs> there's tons of money there to well, do it. An so, extra trillion dollars to invest yeah, in the economy. Exactly. Yeah. Per year. So tell, yeah, yeah. Per year. Per year. Uh, it's not so, nothing. So tell us what the, what the budget reflects. Yeah. So I think what the budget is, is getting to is really recognizing a growing consensus of what you just said, that open market stock buybacks are used principally to manipulate stock prices and earnings per share to benefit in the short term, you know, C-suite executives who who get paid uh, based on earnings per share and other, other metrics related to stock price, but also, you know, actually 
shape the way the stock market is working, I think, in important ways. There was a study recently that showed that something like 40% of the gains of the equity rally over the past you know, eight or nine years comes from companies buying back their own shares. I mean, that's right. proof positive of a very, very unhealthy capital market. Yeah. So there's those big, bigger macro issues. And then as you said, the, the 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 also the the opportunity cost of all this wasted money. So so what the budget does is it it shows support for essentially disconnecting the ability of corporate executives to juice the stock right at the moment they're selling shares, uh, which has been the preferred way of many corporate executives um, to get a little pay bump, um, incidentally, while they're using uh, corporate uh, funds. So that's essentially what the budget says it does. I think it's really important because now we have both the Security and Exchange Commission, which is engaged in the new rulemaking around stock buybacks, which would increase the transparency, ideally at a daily level. So you could see on every day what a company has bought back in shares and track that against insider selling from executives. So that's moving forward, hopefully in a positive way. And we've put in some submissions on that. Um, you've got Congress moving uh, accordingly. And you know, you've also got, maybe surprisingly, uh, a lot of, if you want to say sustainable or just common sense investors, which are saying this has got to end. And so we may be at a place where this particular provision in, in the budget sort of symbolizes peak buybacks because we are now at a peak and this is the record years, you know, you know, maybe this will signal that the time has come. I just want to be clear about the the policy and the budget. What, what you were referring to is that um, there's a lot of studies that show that a company will announce stock buybacks uh, that will drive the price up immediately and then executives sell at that moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and uh, as I understand it, this would put a, a three-year freeze on executives selling their shares after announcing a, sh- a share repurchase. Yeah, something around three to four. This is a you know, it's a proposal, so it's not written right. into legislative language. But that that's sort of the the idea is to have a cooling off period to prevent executives from selling their shares at the time of or just after uh, a share repurchase. And you know, to the extent that you believe that a lot of these share repurchases are done to uh, boost personal uh, income and there are some, some, some private interests in mind, which I think is the case, um, this would essentially uh, eliminate that. So just playing it back to you, I hadn't thought it quite through. If you're, comp- if you're the CEO of a company that does a stock buyback, you will not be able to sell any of your shares for three years after that action takes place. Yeah. Okay. Well, well that will... That would that will put a kibosh on it. <laughs> well, exactly. It would, exactly. Yeah, there it, it would, be a it would lot limit of the interest enthusiasm of enthusiasm in the C suite mm-hmm. for uh, for uh, stock buybacks anymore because that that would that, that that effectively ends the executive's ability to buy and sell stock. If, or if, it would end their ability to, to um, do stock engage buybacks. in buybacks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. They can, right. If they don't do I, buybacks and they yeah. instead invest in their own company and increase and they sales, tr- and, yeah. and yeah. the stock price goes up, then they get the earnings sell. have gone up, then they can sell and make a profit. Okay. Yeah. Right. Okay. Okay. I, I, I'm seeing this clearly now, and the power of that change is is more apparent. To me, I would have just taxed him at 10%. You know, I would have just said, "Look, go go for it." But we get ten percent of everything you do. 
Yeah, well, there's there's a proposal on that, uh, Nick. Uh, you know, uh, as part of the Build Back Better uh, RIP uh, agenda, there was an excise tax of one percent. Uh, we could get up to ten percent, twenty percent. I personally think that we should move back to a pre nineteen eighty two standard mm-hmm. where these open market repurchases were seen as pernicious, yeah. as manipulative, and just ban it. And yeah, one hundred percent, except in extraordinary circumstances, right? Correct. Right. Yeah. Right. And if you want to yeah. distribute, you know, you can use the dividend channel, which is more recognized as, as adding value. So speaking of taxes, uh, how would this uh, centimillionaire tax affect people like Nick? <laughs> well, I can't say I know the ins and outs of, of, of your tax returns, Nick, but uh, essentially uh, this would prevent many centimillionaires from being able to pay less than 20%, essentially, to get around and avoid the income tax code in, in really important ways. And to be clear, I, I pay more than 20%, Goldie, already. So. so it wouldn't affect you at all. There you go. What I said people is, like Nick. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So what this is really focused on, right, is to deal with this really outstanding and, and pernicious gap between what ordinary people pay in income tax, um, you know, on average, something like 14 to 20 percent uh, at the federal level, and what, you know, centimillionaires and billionaires pay, which is anywhere between zero and maybe 8 percent, I think on average was the, one of the latest uh, studies, um, and say, hey, no matter how rich you are, you can't, you know, get beyond the law and you pay 20 percent, including, importantly, on realized gains. So if you're a Zuckerberg and Facebook stock jumps uh, 20%, you're going to pay on an annual level the existing capital gains tax on that uh, unrealized gain, gain, even if you didn't sell the stock. Is that the main part of, of how this works? Uh, how the, or, or do they have specifics in terms of this? I guess it's like the alternative minimum billionaire tax. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it would set a floor for those worth more than $100 million and, you know, uh, apply also, as I mentioned, just to to those unrealized capital gains, which is important because this is happening within a context, right, of a growing consensus, at least in many parts of the Democratic Party, that we need to tax the ultra wealthy more effectively. And there are different ways to do that. You know, the wealth tax was very much discussed during the campaign and and a little bit uh, after that. That would tax dynastic wealth. That would tax right the stock of wealth at a two mm-hmm. percent level or an eight percent level. Whereas this proposal, which is really sort of a an iteration of Senator Wyden's mark to market proposal, would tax the growth of wealth. And so, and it's really in that sense more of an income tax than a wealth tax. We've just heard clips today, starting with the Tom Hartman program discussing the rise of fascism in Germany in the wake of hyperinflation. Robert Reich explained the impact of corporate concentration on inflation. Democracy Now! looked at how times of inflation are used by corporations to price gouge. The Zero Hour explained the disconnected narratives of the elite and everyday folks experiencing the economy. The broadcast discussed how COVID drove the growth of billionaire wealth. Democracy Now! explained the special corporate deals that were struck, which are now helping drive the shortage of baby formula. 
The broadcast looked at policy proposals including a wealth tax and pitchfork economics, explored the pros and cons of Biden's budget proposal. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard bonus clips from Trevor Noah on The Daily Show explaining how the rich enjoy undue benefits of their wealth without taxation. And the Zero Hour gave two case studies of corporate abuse, from the meatpacking industry as well as childcare. To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into your new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestofleft.com support, or request a financial hardship membership because we don't make a lack of funds a barrier to hearing more information. Every request is granted, no questions asked. And now, I just want to put a little bit of a finer point on one of the stories that was brought up in the show, the WIC government deals with corporations. As we heard, exclusive deals were struck on a state-by-state basis in exchange for discounts on baby formula, that sort of thing. And the argument for a policy like this gets made in a multi-layered way. First of all, what they will say is that there's a desire to save the government money by striking special deals, and that is the least terrible-sounding argument of the bunch. But as I think you'll see, it's not that good, and it gets worse from there. What I think is really at play here is a deep-seated distrust of people to know how to take care of themselves without guidance or guardrails. And when I say people, I don't mean people in general. I think, you know, people in the government will go on and on about how great they think people are at free enterprise and making their own decisions and choice and all of that. It's the poor people, unfortunately, who just don't know how to make any decisions for themselves. And so if we're going to help them, the government is sort of saying to itself, they don't say this as much out loud, If we're going to help them, we really have to put some restrictions on the help we give. Otherwise, they're going to do it wrong because they're poor and they don't know how to do things. So this, I think, is itself a form of sort of elite panic. This is a concept we've been discussing on the bonus show in depth. And it is this assumption by the elites that the poor and the working class, depending on the circumstance, are almost perpetually on the doorstep of chaos, with only the thin veneer of social structures keeping us in check. And so if there's something like a natural disaster, the reaction of the elites is often to police the people to keep us under control, rather than just help us deal with the actual disaster, for fear that, I don't know, a riot is going to break out at any minute, right? So that's in an emergency situation. But in policymaking, this same kind of fear of the poor and the working class manifests with programs like WIC and SNAP that provide support for people because that's nice, but it creates this huge bureaucracy to filter out the deserving from the undeserving, which of course itself is just a compromise because there are many who think that to be poor essentially automatically makes one undeserving of help. You've already proven yourself to not know how to live life correctly. So it's it's sort of a throwing good money after bad sort of situation in those people's minds. And then on top of that, there's the logistical guardrails. You got the bureaucracy and then the logistical guardrails that make sure that those who we have deemed at least partially deserving can only spend the money on what the policymakers think is appropriate. And all of this, all of the work that goes into separating out the 
undeserving, and all the effort put into designing guardrails to keep people in line, it all stems from the desire to avoid the greatest sin in American politics, wasting taxpayer dollars. No, I'm just kidding. That's just the argument that they make, which uh, makes it more acceptable to people. You know, obviously, vastly more money is wasted in places like the Pentagon than on our various supports for the poor. But what we always hear is hand-wringing over money wasted on social programs because it taps into a, a very different idea of how the money is being spent or wasted or whatever. Because with a social program, many will think that the money is being given to those who can't be trusted, unlike the honorable people working in the military-industrial complex who have proven their worthiness through their success. So if you need this in shorthand, basically, people who don't need help deserve it because they don't need it, while those who need help don't deserve it because they've proven themselves unworthy by needing it. And so the way they'll see it is that wasting money on poor people isn't like overspending on a new fighter jet. I mean, that could just be a mix-up. That happens. That's understandable. But giving money to the poor, who, as we assume, can't be trusted to spend their money correctly, becomes an injustice. It's not just moving money from the haves to the have-nots. It's moving money from the deserving to the undeserving. And that's basically just stealing someone's money and throwing it in the garbage. So that's how you get people all riled up against policies that would actually make sense and be less complicated and help people more because you can put it in this framework of injustice. And it is this narrative that we have been beaten down by that results in the focus on designing these kinds of programs to avoid wasting money at all costs. Give away corporate monopolies? Sure. Build a bureaucracy to create friction between those who need help and actually receiving that help? Absolutely. Don't give cash that is maximally flexible so that people can get exactly what they need, but rather give them highly restricted spending power that also, and maybe as a side benefit, marks and stigmatizes them in the process? For sure. And then all of that comes crashing down when there's a sudden shortage and the monopoly structures play into that. Well, you know, what can we do? How could we have seen this coming? And all of this, from the overly complicated way that we design our policies to the disdain for the poor that drives those policies, it all comes from the faulty premise that individualism and meritocracy are good ways to describe the functioning of society. There's no structural analysis to the factors of the cycles of poverty that have nothing to do with individual effort or merit, and so people can continue to delude themselves that to be poor is an evidence of a lack of merit, and to be rich is evidence of merit. And one need not look any closer than that. Which brings us back to the solution that cuts through all of this and was mentioned in the clip. Just give people more money and don't make them jump through all these hoops. But really, it isn't just a policy problem. That's relatively easy to fix if you make the right arguments and push it through the right legislatures and all of that. It's a culture problem built on this faulty premise, and frankly, we need to fix both. 
As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or emailing me to j at bestofleft.com. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio Ben, Ken, and Scott for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosts hosting. And thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofleft.com slash support through our Patreon page or from right inside the Apple Podcast app. Membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good bonus episodes in addition to there being extra content and no ads in all of our regular episodes all through your regular podcast player. And speaking of building a better culture, join our Best of the Left Discord community to discuss the show, the news, other podcasts, interesting articles, videos, books, all of that sort of stuff, and continue sending in your recommendations. I've been putting out a call for just things that you find interesting. Hey, I heard this. Hey, I saw this. Jay should know about this. Send me those. You can tweet at me, email me, whatever you like. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestofleft.com. Bestofleft.com.